Well, um, I started thinking about these lectionary readings this week, and um, I was on my way to Orlando in a U-Haul vehicle. Uh, If you are a parent of a student who's been to college, you know the joys of renting a U-Haul, or maybe you've got somebody that has a truck with a trailer and a cup that you didn't have to, but I, like millions of other parents, was driving down I-75 in this U-Haul, transferring my sweet little Samantha stuff from Tallahassee down to Orlando. And it seemed much, much appropriate to me to think about the book of Ecclesiastes today. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Vanity, in the Hebrew, the word that's translated vanity means visible and recognizable. You know you're on I-75 in that U-Haul. But unsubstantial, momentary, and profitless. Amen? That's what vanity means. Visible and recognizable, but unsubstantial, momentary, and profitless. Vanity, vanity, all is vain. I don't know about you, but as I read the first lesson and as we read that psalm that David so eloquently set up, but you can't get past the fact that it's really tough to, to think about that psalm and, uh, and the fact that you're going to die and somebody else is going to get your stuff. I've always thought that'd be great to preach at a funeral, but I don't think anybody would pick the reading. So I guess I'm going to have to go ahead and say publicly that I want that psalm read at my funeral. And then whoever's going to preach that, that funeral needs to make sure you hit on that passage. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, you know, my grandfather fought in two wars. He uh, bought over almost 200 acres of land. And one day Cooper will inherit it. What has Cooper possibly done to, to deserve my grandfather's land, all his sweat and labor all those years. Not a blessed thing. That's the right. And that's what the psalmist is saying. And Ecclesiastes can seem almost like a, a depressing sort of a, a Prozac moment because it's just sort of, you know, vanity, vanity. All is chasing the wind. All is, is there's nothing new under the sun. We go round and round. We live and we die and somebody comes up after us. We were at summer camp, and uh, my friend David Alert, a priest over at Christ the King, St. Augustine, a uh, great church to visit if you're ever on vacation in St. Augustine. And uh, David is, is, says to this group, 162 campers, he says, how many of you guys, uh, ages incoming 4th through incoming 12th, how many of you guys know who Billy Graham is? 162 kids, guess how many? Five. If you don't want to be, if you want to be humbled, and think about Billy Graham, preached probably to a million, a billion people rather, through, through television and through mass stadium crusades, a billion people, and yet how quickly Billy Graham's name has been forgotten. By the time those kids are adults, Billy Graham will just be a footnote in history. All that he accomplished, all the people he led to Christ, all the things he did will just simply be forgotten within a brief time. And that's what Ecclesiastes keeps bringing up. Our lives are momentary. They are, they're fleeting. No matter how famous or powerful you are or what you accomplish, you're only a generation away from obscurity. Aren't you loving the sermon so far? Isn't it pumping you up here at the beginning of the school year? 
I, I particularly like for the students. I wish, our, I wish we, had, we could read this next week when our students are back. But uh, I, love, I love at the end there. Um, for in much wisdom, uh, this is the 14th verse of chapter 1. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. All right, students, be blessed. Go out and have a good, good week. Have a good student. Have a good year in your school. So, well, why is it that Ecclesiastes is given us? Why is it even included in the Bible? It's such a, it's such a sobering account. It's part of the wisdom lecture, lectionary. It's part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's meant to be thinking in terms of how we practically live out what we're told in the law, the first five books of the Bible, and then in the prophets, the, the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc., etc. It's meant to turn our hearts to, to how we practically implement these things. Why is it that this book of Ecclesiastes is, is there? You, you know, uh, well, those of you who are over 60 know, to everything turn, turn. That's, for the younger folks, that's a song and famous in the 60s, and it's actually just basically stealing Ecclesiastes uh, and, 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 and reciting it. Um, but yet, we are given the book of Ecclesiastes. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, which is a good, uh, good paraphrase of the Bible, helpful for some people, Eugene Peterson says that the reason why God gives us the book of Ecclesiastes is to remind us that the God of blessing cannot be separated from the blessings of God. The God of blessing, the God who blesses, in other words, cannot be separated from the blessings of God. You see, it's too easy for us as religious people to look at God's hand and say, thank you for all that you've given us, and not look at his face. And eventually we just begin to look at his hands or look at the things we've been given and to be removed from the God of blessing. Peterson says, goes on to say about Ecclesiastes, nothing can stand on its own apart from God. Nothing can stand on its own apart from God. And so what Ecclesiastes does, it says, it's like Job. It says, what, but instead of it being about Job, who, you know, suffers all these terrible things, and all of his friends come and try to give him bad advice, and Job continues to press on and have faith, and eventually God reveals himself, except, except in the, which is another, by the way, another book of wisdom. But in Ecclesiastes, it's not Job that's the focus, it's us. Life is fleeting. Life is hard. We don't have a lot of answers. We don't understand why there's pain. If you're super smart or if you're dumb as a box of tools, you both end up in the grave. That's the Ecclesiastes. It's to strip away from us this false pretense that we can focus on the blessings of God and neglect the God who blesses. And that's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. It's interesting, Eugene Peterson also goes on to say that in the ancient Jewish uh, feasts that are obviously still celebrated by Orthodox Jews around the world. And the great feast, there were assigned lessons, sort of like our lectionary. As a matter of fact, this is where we get the idea for a lectionary because the Jewish people always had assigned readings. The greatest, probably the most joyful of all the feasts that happened in Israel was the Feast of Tabernacles. 
It celebrated two things. One, it celebrated the incoming of the harvest. At the beginning of the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest is celebrated. Look at how God has been rich and blessed us with this crop. Look at all we have. And so they made the offering of the first fruits. And so it was a celebration of the first fruits. Look how God has provided for us. And secondly, there was the remembrance of how God had provided in the desert. When the children of Israel were led out of Egypt by the plagues and, and whatnot into the, into the desert, and God provided. What did he provide? He provided manna. He provided quail to eat, right? Because they wanted meat. He, he caused water to come from the rock. God provided richly for them. All of his provisions, the way he's provided for us now and the way he provided for us in the past. That's what celebrated at, tab- at Tabernacles, at the Feast of the Tabernacles. But guess what the assigned reading for the Feast of Tabernacles was? Ecclesiastes. Why in the world would God have us read Ecclesiastes at the most joyful celebration of Israel so that we don't forget that we can't simply look at the blessings of God without remembering the God who blesses. Now it's interesting. I don't know if you picked up on it. I'm going to try to walk you through it. This is one of those sermons where you got to really stay with me because I really think there's a tie-in to our gospel lesson and I want to flip over with you now to the gospel lesson. You've got the hand out there so you can read along and Jesus tells this parable that I think I can make the connection to this Ecclesiastes passage. I hope I can because that's what I just said I was going to do. So, and in this, but, but in this, I want you to see that Jesus is, is in the middle of his, a sermon. He's preaching and, and somebody yells out, you know, hey, Jesus, get my brother to share the inheritance with me, right? Now, I've, I've, as a pastor, I've had people say, I need to talk to you after the service, you know, and I get back with them. And it's something sort of like this, you know, by the way, my brother, he's not sharing the inheritance, you know, and, and kind of thing. But they don't even wait for the end of Jesus' sermon. They just begin, he's in the middle of speaking, and this guy yells out, hey, tell my brother to share my inheritance. And how does Jesus respond? I am the judge of the earth. Here's what you should do. No, he doesn't do that. He says, man, who made me the arbitrator and judge over you? Well, you are the king of the world, so technically you would be the right person to talk to these things about. Jesus doesn't at all address the issue between the two brothers. Instead, what does he say? He says, take care. Be watchful. Be watchful, be careful of covetousness, for a life does not consist in the abundance of what one possesses. Isn't that interesting? He just doesn't get into the minutia of our lives. I mean, inheritances are great. I talked with somebody this week saying, man, I, I hope that when my parents die that there'll be a little bit of an inheritance. And so do I, we all probably do. It's not that Jesus is saying that's not important at all. But what is Jesus pointing at is the heart of the man who's asking the question. Take care. Be watchful for covetousness. The last of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet their neighbor's house or thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's cattle or thy neighbor's maidservants or manservants. Thou shalt not covet. In other words, to To covet is to want what somebody else has that you have not been given. 
Simply put, it's to, it's to say to God, I know you think you've given me good stuff, but I really think you did me a disservice because I want that. And because you didn't give it to me, I'm going to seek to get it on my own. Whatever that may be. That car, that wife, that husband, that job, that career, those friends, whatever it might be. To covet is to want what God has not given us. And Jesus says, be on guard for covetousness, for wanting what you've not been given. You see, I think in the same way that Ecclesiastes strips it down and says, says all these things are fleeing. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, there, there is this, there's, this, there's this momentary lightness of life that, that fleets by that in the midst of that, we are brought to awareness of the things that we have built our lives on. Do I love God because he makes me healthy? Do I love God because he's given me a wonderful wife? Do I love God because he's made me be born in America where I can prosper financially? Or do I love God, period? Would I love God even if I suffered the horrible things that Job had to endure? So Jesus tells the parable. He goes on. So that was just the setup. That was just the setup for the joke, so to speak. And here comes the, here comes the joke and the punchline. Jesus says, and I don't mean it's a, a, a joke, but in the same way that a joke works, so does the parable work in Jesus' teaching. And so he says, this man decides, you know, because he says a man's life is not, Jesus says a man's life is not amount to the, the number of his possessions. Um, it shouldn't, at least. But then he tells this interesting parable, doesn't he? He says this man had a plenteous, plenteous land, and it provided for him richly. That's what he's saying. And then the man says, you know, my land is so plenteous that I've got more crops than I have barns to put them in. Now, you might think, he might think, well, you know, maybe I should give the surplus to people who are in need. But that's not what the man says, does he? He says, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. And then I'll put all my extra grain in those barns. And then I'll say to my soul, I love it. Don't you love when you talk to your soul? Soul, relax. Eat, drink, and be merry, for you have plenty now. And God says, oh, you fool. Now, before we start feeling really like, huh, jerk, why don't you just live with what you had? You know, what fascinates me is in America, with these big houses we have, how we have to build these air-conditioned storage units that are multiple stories, right? To put all our important stuff that has to be kept air-conditioned that we can't fit into our own houses. Aren't we a lot like this rich man? But God says today your life will be required of you. And gosh, I mean, the way he speaks to them Fool, this night your life is required for you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Cooper's going to get those things. He poops in his pants. He doesn't deserve it. You've done all this life. I, the early service, Walter, Walter, I said, what have your grandkids done to deserve your inheritance? And Walter said, not a blessed thing. And I said, that's right. So why do we build our lives working towards the accumulation of things? 
isn't in the same way that Ecclesiastes is trying to... You see, Ecclesiastes is not building us up. It's cleansing us. It's, it's tearing down. It's, it's stripping away all the false notions we have about God. It's all the ways we've made God in our image rather than seeking to live into his image. Jesus says, tonight your life will be required of you. So the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Lays up treasure for themselves. In other words, their heart is focused on their possessions or their blessings or their health or their relationship or their career or their reputation or their fame or just their free time. I love how Solomon, you know, who writes Ecclesiastes, said, you know, he talks about all the things he does. He builds parks and he builds, he builds all these, these things for himself. And, and he, he, he's, at one point he says, he says I, I endeavor to drink lots of wine, but always with a mind for wisdom. That's not a justification for drinking and, you know, but I'm okay. I was still wise even while I was down in those couple of bottles of wine. And then he talks about, you know, acquiring male servants and female servants. And, and, you know, again, it's like that's an ancient culture we can't really relate. But, boy, you know, to have minions, Beth and I used to talk about that, have minions, have people that run around and do your will, you know, it's a pretty cool de deal, right? And then at the end, he talks about that he had musicians around him who could play for him and entertain him. That sounds like drug, sex, and rock and roll to me. You know, concubines. The whole nine yards. Sorry, that might be a little PG, but I think we're all adults here, or near adults. But uh, it's all these things that we would build our lives around. And Jesus, in the heart of the gospel, says, such as you are, who, who build your life around anything other than being rich towards God. Well, how do we how do we become rich towards God? Well, first of all, not just to, I don't want you to think that Ecclesiastes is a completely depressing book. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to read it. Every year when it comes through my lectionary and my Bible reading, I, I, I'm always reminded I should read this more often. I think it probably should be read on a regular basis, sort of like Psalm 49 should be read on a regular basis, particularly at funerals and other important events like that. But, but I want you to know that, that the lessons that, that, how do we live rich towards God? Here's some things that that, that Ecclesiastes suggests. Ecclesiastes ends on this very note, as a matter of fact, but it's throughout the whole book. We should fear the Lord. We should live a life that will be accountable to God. Verse, chapter 5, chapter 11, chapter 12, 13 and 14, which are the last verses. Ecclesiastes ends with that, that, with that admonition that we should live a life in fear of the Lord now, that doesn't mean be so scared that we, we run around as if he's going to zap us with a lightning bolt. But live in reverence for God. The way you, you reverence the ocean. You know, I enjoy the ocean, but I don't think of it as a lake or even a river. It's the ocean. It will kill me. And if I'm not from Florida, there are sharks that will kill me if the ocean doesn't kill me. That was a joke, but anyway... The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So God will bring every deed into judgment, and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Where Ezekiel, uh, Ecclesiastes tells us that we're to fear God. 
but we're also to enjoy the blessings of life. And I want you to know that's also a part of, of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes talks about that we're to enjoy the, the work that we're given to do. We're to enjoy companionship. We're to enjoy the created beauty of the world. And we're even to enjoy the possessions that God has given us. You see, the problem isn't being in the possessions. It's when we spend all our times focused on the things we don't have rather than enjoying the things we do. I could say a lot more about that, but I'm, I'm just going to keep going. There's too much here. So we're to enjoy the blessings of life. We're to see them as gifts from God to be enjoyed. We're to be thankful of heart, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. And we're, he says in chapter 3, verse 11, we're to remember that God has put eternity in our hearts. Solomon says this is what separates us from the animals, that we have the ability to comprehend that there is something beyond the perceived world. I just finished the biography of C.S. Lewis, and that's, for, you know, was for Lewis, one of the things that, you know, he was a, an Oxford guy, he was a, a he was a smart guy, but he, he didn't. He rejected the Christianity of his childhood. But eventually, he came to, to recognize that 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 Christianity made sense of reality, the reality that was, and that there's something about us that there's eternity in our hearts that we have this sense that there is something more than what we can see and touch and smell and taste and feel. Verse eleven, chapter three. He made everything beautiful in its time but also he put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning of the world. So we don't give him all the answers, but we are given this clue, this hint that there is more beyond what we can see. How do we live rich towards God? How do we touch this eternity that's in our our minds that God has put in there? Ecclesiastes doesn't give us the whole answer, although David alerted to it in our or refrain, our psalm, that there, there is a sense in which God, in, in the Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, he says, God will save me from the grave. God will care for me. Well, we, of course, as New Testament Christians know that what Ecclesiastes is pointing to in the eternity in our minds is the hope of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where the bus changes courses again. Because I want to tie in, I know this is crazy, but you know I do this sometimes. Colossians chapter 3. So hop over to Colossians chapter 3 with me. You got it there. But I have a bone to pick with the lectionary writers, Father James. Not that you're the lectionary writer. But I want to just point out that the lectionary effectively cut out the gospel when it gave us these verses 5 through 17. Because it starts with verse 5, and you were probably thinking, man, it's bad enough. Ecclesiastes and Psalms have depressed the heck out of me. But now you're going to hit me with all this moralistic teaching. Put off sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. For the wrath of God is coming against such and such as these. And then skipping down to verse seven, uh, 12, put on, as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing one another and if you have a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Boy, what do we do with all that? Well, the problem is we had the gospel cut out. Because the gospel's in the first four verses. How can we put off these things? How can we embrace Ecclesiastes 
and, and, not, and, and be, bear warning to the, to, the, to the parable that Jesus tells about the rich man who builds bigger barns, how can we avoid those pitfalls? Well, it's only in the hope that is in Christ, which is found in verses 1 through 4. If then you be raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated in the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If, if, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ and if you've died with him, your life is hidden with Christ and therefore you have the power to put off those sinful things and to put on those righteous things. But it is only because of Christ. You see what Colossians 1 and 2 tells us that for us who believed on Jesus, that he died on the cross, God made man the perfect sacrifice for sin and that God raised him on the third day. That if we believe in that, Paul says in Colossians 1 and 2, then our lives are hidden in Christ. Christ literally is our life. Our life is hidden in him. Paul says in Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, the whole focus is that if we are in Christ, then our lives will be focused on him and we will be empowered then to put off the things that Paul wants to go on to say and to put on the things that he calls us to put on. You you read that list in Colossians 3, and, and, you know, it's things like fear and and anger, despondency. Those are the things that that come out of our minds. These are the the things that we're putting off. They have to do with our getting angry and our getting fearful or just becoming despondent with the world because we're just we're just we're, we're not even really sure we're so overwhelmed with it that we just we just sort of become depressed and 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 what what's causing those things well behind those things are our pursuit of life apart from God if you think about what really makes you angry or fearful or despondent Isn't it because you want for something that you have not been given and you're angry because somebody else is getting in the way of you getting it? Something else has raised its head and said, I am your life, darn it, and you aren't getting me, so go get it. And get angry or get mad or just give up in frustration. But if Christ is my life, if my life is hidden in Christ, I can say back to those things, no, you are not my life and I don't need you. You following me? Am I making sense? Have I gone too many many changes, too many bus changes? Am Am I still coming through? I feel like I've threw a few people off the bus. I know this is complex, but you guys are smart. You see, 
The reason we read Ecclesiastes at the Feast of the Tabernacles is because the Lord wants to strip us away from the, that false pretense that we have. Sometimes where we think we're lovers of God and really we're lovers of many other things. And so he reminds us of the futility of life apart from God. And then he calls us to trust God anyway. And Jesus calls us in the gospel passage to remember that, that we should be rich towards God and not to make our lives about anything else, no matter how good it might be. Nothing wrong with having financial security. But if it causes me anger and fear and despondency when things don't go right, I've built my life on the wrong thing. Now, does that mean that I'm not going to get angry or that I'm not going to be fearful? Of course not. I mean, I, I, you know, I play golf with a retired guy and, and David Foster and I start, it gets me thinking, you know, dang, do I have enough money to retire one day? Or am I going to be doing this forever? You know, it's like I'll just preach till I'm 90 and fall over maybe. You know, and of course I still have fears, but they're not overwhelming fears. They're not fears that make me petrified. We're, we're, all the, the, the anger and the fear and, and the fact that sometimes we get depressed or despondent, it's still going to happen at times, but, but it's not overwhelming because it's not my life. Christ is my life. And so I can face a life that's momentary, that's, that's fleeting. I can... I can I said to, I said to uh, Jake's mother-in-law, I said, well, I just made my last trip. I've just moved out my last kid from college. I'll never have to move out another college kid out of their dorm or out of their room. And she just laughed at me. She said, well, actually, my son Aaron will be graduating in a few months, and we're going to need your help. And, and then we laughed at each other. We started thinking, you know what? We will probably be the grandparents that somehow get roped in to moving Cooper in and out of dorms. I mean, Right? You guys know Jake. <laughs> it's never ending. It's never ending. But it's not my life. Christ is my life. If we want to really take seriously this understanding of what, what, how Christ is building our lives, we will ask ourselves, what thing, if I lose it, would I be prone to say I no longer have a reason to live? That's the temptation, even for believers, to build our life on anything, no matter how good, apart from God. Remember what Eugene Peterson said, nothing can stand on its own apart from God. Our life is hidden in Christ. That's why we have to come back here and repeat and recite the liturgy week after week because we are bombarded everywhere we go and everywhere we turn every time we turn on the television or social media that we're called to make our life about something else and yet our life is hidden in Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen